Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Who would you be willing to throw under the bus for the greater good? Who could we get rid of to enjoy a more united, more harmonious community? Who would you be willing to trade to accomplish something you really believe in? Questions like this sound pretty abhorrent in the abstract, but in our everyday lives, we entertain them more often than we'd like to admit. This is human sacrifice, not in the literal sense, but metaphorically. And in this episode, Cameron and I discuss the way Jesus confronts the many ways we devalue the people all around us. The title of this episode is Human Sacrifice, and before we go any further, I want to clarify that this is definitely a clickbait title that was intended to draw you in. We will not be discussing the practice of literal human sacrifice. We won't be weighing the pros and cons. We won't be talking about human sacrifice in the Reformed tradition or anything like that. We're talking about human sacrifice in this episode in a more metaphorical sense, yeah. where we are inspired by the, the words found in Hosea chapter 6, which are quoted by Jesus in Matthew 12, where he quotes, God is saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mm. So the contrast is between mercy or uh, loving kindness. Mm-hmm and sacrifice or ritual observance, burnt offerings, that sort of thing. And recently in our series on Matthew 12, we talked about the implications of that principle in the way we treat other people. Our tendency, like the Pharisees, to sacrifice people in favor of ideas or things, stuff we think is good, may be more valuable to us than the people themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's what we mean by human sacrifice. What we're really talking about here has to do with the way we value and treat other people and whether we have a high enough value placed on our fellow human beings. Mm. Yeah, so for anyone listening who wasn't there this last Sunday or two weeks ago, I think, talking about the passage in Matthew 12 with the man with a withered hand. And you drew attention in your sermon, Mark, to the fact that this takes place in the synagogue. We've got Pharisees around, presumably one of their brothers, this man with the withered hand, whom Jesus heals. But the Pharisees are so reluctant about that. And that's what you're you're calling is kind of a a sacrifice of sorts, a willingness to sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're willing to sacrifice him for, for what exactly? Well, in the account in Matthew 12, they're, they're willing to sacrifice this man to score points against Jesus. Mm. You know, Matthew says that they introduce the topic, whether or not it is right to heal on the Sabbath, because they're looking to accuse Jesus. Mm. So, uh, 
in modern political terms, it would be like a test case, right? We're going to do something to violate the law in the hope that we get arrested or sued, and then we can take it to court and vindicate ourselves, something like yeah. that. Like they're, they're, they're wanting to entrap Jesus, back him into a corner, and they feel like they've got an opportunity to do that here. It's striking, too, the way that Matthew describes this isn't that Jesus went into the synagogue, it's that he went into their synagogue. Mm. So he encounters these Pharisees out in the grain fields, and then in the next pericope, he is going into their synagogue. And that was striking to me, that that he's not retreating from the conflict or anything. It's It's like this is using the imagination here, but he encounters these Pharisees out in the fields. They accuse him and it's like, he said, Hey, where do you guys go to church? That's where I'm coming. (laughs) Next service. I'll be there. Mm -hmm. And he shows up on their doorstep, right? So this is their congregation. Mm -hmm. Presumably this man is someone they know, someone that they are in community with. Maybe they've known him their whole lives. He could be related to them. And he desperately needs healing, Mm. right? He needs to be made whole. Jesus does that. And so he comes into their synagogue and instead of welcoming him, you know, instead of saying, hey, look, sorry about the whole grain field encounter, but while you're here, maybe you could heal this person we love. Instead, they just keep at it. And... I just found myself, after reading that passage, going back to that again and again, and just trying to imagine where you'd have to be, um, like, like your mindset, for Jesus to show up at your church, to have people that you care about who need to be healed, and to be willing to throw them under the bus, just so that you could score a point against Jesus. Yeah. It's frightening. And yet one of your points in the sermon was that we do this. All of us do. I think that that idiom you just used, throw throw him under the bus, is a is a way that we describe it. Maybe sometimes comically, like, right. oh, don't throw me under the bus. But what we're talking about is kind of a betrayal of somebody else or a sacrifice, if you want to go all the way. And you had, I think it was three points in the sermon or three objects or altars to which we sacrifice hmm. people sometimes. And you said ideals, desires, or ideas, desires, and there was something else. Things, Things. objects. Yeah. What did you have in mind with those? Well, so I think a lot of times we pursue good ends. Mm. You know, we have good intentions. We want to make the world a better place. Yeah. And sometimes people have to suffer in order to bring about that greater good. So that's a classic example of a willingness to sacrifice actual people in hopes of making sort of abstract people's lives better. Mm. You know, I want to make the world a better place, but to do that, I'm going to have to make a few people miserable, that Mm. sort of thing. That's the trade, basically. Uh, Desires is not as noble, Right, yeah. that we're we're motivated by desires. Some of those desires are 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 righteous. Some of those desires are sinful. But but always like a longing for like a wholeness that we don't have. You know, we want to fill this gap. We want uh, to lay hands on something we don't have. And in order to get to that 
state of being, oftentimes you're willing to basically sacrifice people to get there. I'll give you a, a really banal example, and this happens constantly. If you've ever had you know, a friend, let's say a friend in high school, and he uh, gets a girlfriend, and you used to spend all this time together, and you had this, this tight relationship, and all of a sudden, you are barely seeing the guy anymore. You know, he hardly answers your calls. He doesn't hang out with you anymore, that sort of thing. And it's like you, you had this relationship, and now it seems like it meant nothing because it was just like a stepping stone to get him to the relationship he really wanted, you know, which was this romantic relationship. You're expendable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that sense of your expendability. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take that and you, you know, transpose it to other situations, think about work. You know, how many times have we found ourselves at work investing our time, our lives into some project and only discovered that as far as the boss is concerned, uh, really we aren't what matters. It's just getting the job done however it needs to be done. And if that means you you know, miss your kid's game or it means that you are stressed out and working too much and your health suffers, so be it. The important thing is reaching the goal. You can go on and on thinking about the uh, scenarios, but, Mm -hmm. but essentially when we see people as a kind of disposable resource to achieve some other end, Mm -hmm. that's a kind of sacrifice that is uh, one that I think Jesus encourages us to feel uncomfortable about, <laughs> right? That, that God loves mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah. That God wants us to show love for one another, not to sacrifice one another. That should give us pause because we are constantly using one another to get where we want to go. Right. Yeah, this is just a really rich idea for me. I, I've never really thought about the opposite of love as as sacrificing somebody else. Because, you know, we, we know that we have a duty to love others. My wife, for example. I know Jenny doesn't listen to all of these episodes. She might not hear this one. She wants but, to keep yeah. loving you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I have a duty to love her as her husband. And... And I understand that, but I don't often think about my failure to love her as a kind of sacrifice, as like putting her on some altar so that I can pursue something else. Right. And yet I think that that happens often, you know, as a creative person, maybe we're, I'll speak for myself that it's easy to get caught up in your creative ambitions and this vision of your work or your identity, mm-hmm. one of those, you know, sorts of things or some opportunity and suddenly everybody else sort of like fades away. My relationships are secondary to this ideal thing. Right. And maybe somebody could be a means for me to get there, but, but everybody else I will sacrifice to get there. You know, and I think there are sacrifices that society condemns, but sacrifices that it celebrates. Yeah. You know, if you take your paycheck and you blow it on liquor when your kids are at home starving without shoes, no one's going to pat you on the back for putting yourself first and, you know, fulfilling your desires (laughs) at the expense of the people you love. 
But, you know, you're touching on something where it's more ambiguous, right? Because if you, you know, write a great poem or build a great building or do some great thing, and as a result, you weren't there for the people in your life and that sort of thing, we look at that and we think, well, of course, I mean, a great artist, you know, you've got to, you've got to focus on mm-hmm. the art, you know, and, and I'm not trying to make this a simplistic black and white kind of thing. I realize it's complicated, but ultimately our orientation towards other people is either um, instrumental mm-hmm. or it's something more. And Jesus calls us to make it the something more. Hmm. When I was in college, I read Martin Buber's classic book, I and Thou. And this is a hard book to describe because it's sort of a, it's a work of philosophy and a work of theology and a work of psychology and, and an essay. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of all rolled into one, but reading this book with friends of mine, we, this became sort of our, our terminology. So Buber describes two sorts of relationship. One is the I, it relationship and one is the I, thou relationship. And he specifically says thou, not you, because he's trying to elevate it. Yeah. He's trying to put a certain perspective on the other. Mm-hmm. Right, that it's this isn't just a thing. This is a a capital P person. Mm-hmm. Now, originally, I remember resisting this classification a lot, and not wanting to throw all of my I it relationships under the bus. You know, in other <laughs> words, not completely condemn the idea that some relationships, by their nature, are this way. But as I've gotten older and as I've reflected on this more, and certainly as I've studied scripture more, it seems to me that there's less room for that than I thought there was when I was 20 years old. So just to clarify, is is he saying there are some relationships with other humans that we classify I, it? Exactly. Exactly. So like if we were looking for synonyms, um, you know, these days we talk a lot about objectifying someone. Yeah. And if you think about what that means, I mean, literally making someone into an object, yeah. like treating them like property, yeah. using them, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, another term that we often use when we describe a relationship, you might say this is a transactional relationship. Yeah. Um, I get something from it, you get something from it, but that's all it is. And if I don't get from it what I'm looking for, that's the end of the relationship. That The value of the relationship derives from what I benefit, Mm. you know. So that's the I-it relation. And when I read the book, I mean, the thing that convicts you and the thing that you kind of take away with you is, am I, you know, I-itting people (laughs) when I should be I-thouing them? But the I-thou thing is quite difficult because it's, it's, it sometimes has almost the the you know courtly romance sort of on a pedestal feeling to it like um it just seems so idealistic mm-hmm. and yet it really is just just 
an assertion of the worthiness yeah. of people, that they deserve respect because of who they are, um, you are kind of looking not at the surface and not at the person's you know, gifts or status, but rather seeing something deeper than that. And something that I think in Christian theology we could talk about as the image of God. Yeah. You know, that there's a um, image of God basis for the respect that we show to another human being. And we can talk about that in a way that it's like, it's not you I respect, it's the image of God in you. But I don't think that's quite right, because you are made in the image of God, yeah. right? So in respecting that, I'm respecting you, right? That it's not a separable concept in this way. So maybe another way to think about it is that that I-thou relationship is a relationship that is the end, not the means. Right. So if if you're a certain kind of guy and you hear that, it just sounds horrible because you already don't want to talk about your relationship and now you're being told the relationship is, is the end. It's the purpose. It's the thing you're, you're there for, not just some end that you're going to get something, you know, or means by which you will get something else that you want. Right. Uh, but, but that's what he's getting at, that as long as I'm in relation with you, because I need something out of you, or I hope to sort of get somewhere through you or something like that. That's the I, it thing. It's only when the relationship is for its own sake that it's at this higher level, but the higher level is the, the proper level. Like it's at at the human level Hmm. to put it that way. Yeah. Um, I don't often quote Immanuel Kant on this podcast, (laughs) But it, one of his famous categorical imperatives mm-hmm. was never to treat someone as a means only, mm. but always and everywhere to treat every person as an end in himself. And and I, you know, that's what he's getting at. That there's some yes. like dignity in humans that demands our respect. And and I think we could leave room still for transactional type relationships so long as we respect that yeah. dignity in others, right? Yeah, maybe what we leave room for is, is let's say, like an economic relation. Yeah. You know, that there's a, there's a community aspect. You know, we're in relation with people and we serve one another and there's a, a, an economic um, and oikonomic <laughs> aspect to that. But it doesn't have to be merely transactional. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, it isn't just uh, using people. And so I think even, even at the level of, you know, of course I need other people in order to survive. I, I, no man is an island. Yeah. Uh, even so, you don't have to use people. Mm-hmm. You don't have to objectify people. And you certainly don't have to stand in the way of their wholeness to score some points in your argument with Jesus. Yeah which is what the Pharisees do, you know, and, 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 you know, bringing it back full circle like that, like that, that was the the point of departure. Like, like just thinking about how could it be that this guy that they ought to love can become in this moment for them, just this expendable resource in an argument that they're having. Um, It's inconceivable on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's very relatable because, you know, we've all done this. We've all 
treated people in ways that, that were, you know, shameful and inconsistent with their true dignity. What's striking, though, is that Jesus doesn't do that, right? Jesus doesn't just engage in argument with them and forget, oh yeah, there's this guy who needs healing. Uh, when Jesus leaves that situation, he, he does the healing, mm-hmm. right? He leaves the man whole, and that's the difference, I think, where these men who had a wrong view of him were willing to leave him maimed. Jesus was unwilling to leave without making the man whole, you know, because of the value that he placed on him. Yeah. I, I almost want to take it a step further too. And think about what Paul says in Romans 12, that we are to live, we are to be living sacrifices. Mm. So it's not just that, of course you shouldn't, sacrifice people for your ambitions or whatever but that your life actually following christ is to become a kind of sacrifice for others and a living one it's like perpetual sacrifice for others and that to me is again the beauty of the lord's supper which we celebrated you know after that sermon and just thinking wow like the image of christ's body broken for you and his blood shed for you it it really brought it home for me and i think that's that's the challenge that I, or the, the encouragement that I feel is okay. So how can I, how can I lay my life down for others as, as well? You know, if you think about this, when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. One way to read that is God's kind of admitting there that the whole sacrifice thing is just pretty random and dispensable. Yeah. Right, that that ultimately all that matters is love. All of this sacrifice thing, I don't actually care about that stuff. Why not even make you do it? I don't, I can't even remember now. Like that's <laughs> not what I care about. But that isn't what's happening there. He's not saying I don't care about sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't important. I think he's demonstrating the inadequacy of the sacrifices that we're capable of making. Right, he has in view a greater sacrifice of himself Mm -hmm. that all of these lesser sacrifices just foreshadow. So he intends to offer himself on the altar as a sacrifice. And that surely is behind this statement, right? That sacrifice will be an expression of his mercy, of his love. Mm -hmm. It's not an accident that those words from Hosea 6 verse 6 come right before Hosea 6, verse 7, which begins, like Adam, they transgressed my covenant. So he's talking about this particular sin, but he's comparing it to that original sin of Adam, that transgression of what in theology we call the covenant of works, that necessitates this sacrifice by Christ. So there's a connection between those things. And I think you're right that if we want to show love and proper respect to those around us, our attitude will be self-sacrificing. We won't be looking to others to sacrifice for us. We won't be sacrificing others, uh, whether they want to or not for us. We'll rather be looking to make sacrifices 
for their good. There's an interesting connection here too. The way we treat people oftentimes is determined by what we need to justify. So if you think about wartime treatment of the enemy, uh, this is true, I think, in, in most wars, but it's a, a thing that doesn't age very well. So if we go back historically and we look at you know propaganda of World War II and the way that American propaganda characterized German or Japanese soldiers, if you go back to World War I, you go back farther than that, you find these really uncomfortable things that are being said. You know, that we're not we're not fighting human beings here. We're fighting vermin. Right. You know, we're fighting subhumans. And in the um, you know, the the sort of quiet reflection of the study, you hear language like that and think, oh, that's abhorrent, that's terrible. But it makes sense if you realize, oh, we're going to be killing these people mm. and we're going to be treating them really badly. We're going to be burning their cities and laying them to waste. And, and it's really hard to do that to human beings, yeah. you know, who are like us. You know, it's hard to, to do that to families. They're like our families. And so in order to treat them the way that we intend to treat them, we have to tell ourselves things about them that are going to justify it and make, mm-hmm. you know, make it okay. Uh, the term that we use for that is dehumanizing. Right? We dehumanize our intended victim. You always see this in crime shows, right? When you're taken hostage by the killer and you're trying to convince him to let you go or whatever, you start telling him you know, your name and about your family and that <laughs> sort of thing. So you humanize, you humanize yourself, yeah. right? Because yeah. it'll be harder for him then mm-hmm. to, to do away with you. And that, that spectrum maybe is an extreme example of something that really does lie at the heart of this, that we treat people as objects so that we can use them as objects. But the treating them that way comes first, right? So those Pharisees probably didn't treat this guy with love and respect and then suddenly flip. My guess is every time this guy with the withered hand came into the synagogue, uh, there he is again. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they would have looked down their noses at this guy. They would have wished he went to some other synagogue or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, they probably had already in their hearts given this guy up so that the idea of doing it in this moment wasn't a big leap, wasn't something they had to struggle over. I mean, if that's the case, then I think for us, you can reverse engineer that to figure out how do we fight it. Mm -hmm. You know, if if we don't want to be that way, if we don't want to be human sacrificers, (laughs) then the answer is to stop dehumanizing and to rehumanize, like to humanize people that, that we have to really reflect on their value. We have to force ourselves to see the value in people that society will congratulate us for finding contemptible. Mm. You know, it's um, different generations experience this differently. You know, in the past, I think there was an easy uh, contempt for the poor that at least officially we don't see things that way anymore. But now it's kind of good to be contemptuous of those who disagree with you 
you know, in politics, and oftentimes those disagreements will cut along class lines, so that they're these uncomfortable, you know, I, I think these people are stupid, and they also happen to be, you know, less advantaged than me, and, yeah. you know, yeah. so... All of that just to say that if, if we develop habits that, that insist on the dignity of humans and we force ourselves to rehumanize those that we have tended to treat badly, that makes it so much harder to sacrifice instead of show mercy. Yeah. You know, it, it prepares our hearts that when we're tested, we're going to show that love even when it's difficult, we're going to show that self-sacrifice even when it's difficult. Whereas if we don't do this, I think all too often when we're tested, it's easy to just exploit Mm -hmm. and use other people. You drew our attention to the word restore in the, in the sermon. And maybe that's a good way to, to think about what we're trying to do here is, the the first step in loving someone is to humanize them. You know, to love them is to humanize them. But you know, to see them, to see them as a human, to value them, is a kind of restoration. Hmm. It's it's seeing them as they really are in God's image, and then treating them accordingly. And you know, just as Jesus literally, physically, you know, restores this man's hand, we're called to do that in in different ways as well. It's a good insight. I, I think, you know, we, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, the friend who gets a girlfriend and drops all of his friends. I think <laughs> there is a, a similar insight there with uh, the, the guy who worships the idea of a girl, but not the reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I th- he thinks he's in love, but he's really in love with a fantasy. And nobody wants to be loved as what they're not. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be loved because someone has sort of invented a fairy tale version of you. You mm-hmm. actually want to be loved for who you are. Uh, in that sense, you want to be loved for your actual humanity. Otherwise it's like you're actually being sacrificed for an ideal yes. of you. <laughs> precisely, precisely <laughs> yeah. that, that we don't want to make up myths so that we can love people mm-hmm. uh, because that's, just another way of objectifying. Like, yeah. like we want to actually love who they are mm-hmm. uh, in all of the, the messy difficulty of that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I realize that's so easy to say <laughs> and, and so much more difficult to actually do. But that I think is the example that these actions of Jesus really call us to, you know, when you see Jesus, even in the midst of you know, this, this running debate, this running argument where it seems like so much is at stake his focus is not on winning an argument. His focus really is on, on making people whole. And I see that, and I just think that's what I want. That's, that's the example that I want to follow and that I want uh, us as a church to follow. That, that if it means losing an argument, you know, if it means you know, enduring a disadvantage, but in the process of that we have loved people the way Christ would I think to me that's the right place to be that's the right way for a church to live
Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.